Hello, everyone. Welcome to the CNS Journal Club podcast for July 2021. My name is Tiffany Hodges from University Hospitals, Case Western Reserve University at Cleveland, Ohio, and I'll be serving as the moderator today for this discussion. Today, we are really excited to highlight an article from Operative Neurosurgery entitled Comparison of Transradial versus Transfemoral Access in Neurovascular Fellowship Training, Overcoming the Learning Curve. I am happy to welcome the lead author of the manuscript, Dr. Pascal Jabour, Professor of Neurosurgery and Division Chief of Neurovascular Surgery and Endovascular Neurosurgery at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Dr. Jabour, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, as you know, the transradial approach uh, has been a hot topic for the last two years uh, for neurointerventions. And uh, we've published a lot, uh, a lot of people published a lot about it, but um, there were something basics that uh, we wanted to show. It's uh, mainly for people that decided to uh, uh, do the transition and convert to transradial to try to see um, the, what's the learning curve and how can we overcome the learning curve and, and help them uh, with, with some uh, data. So in this paper, uh, we decided to take uh, two fellows uh, that started uh, the beginning of July uh, 2018 until they were done, uh, which is the end of June of 2019. And we wanted to uh, look at their uh, uh, cases, mainly in diagnostic angiogram. Uh, and in our institution, uh, I do always, I do only transradial. Uh, I have a partner, a senior partner, uh, they, they do uh, transfemoral. So it's a kind of uh, nice environment for the fellows so they'd be able to learn both. And uh, we wanted to look and compare their learning curve, uh, comparing transfemoral to transradial. So uh, we looked at the numbers and we wanted to look at some uh, data point that can reflect a little bit uh, their proficiency. And we decided to look at uh, fluoroscopy time, case duration, uh, contrast dose, and radiation exposure. Uh, we, from a statistical standpoint, uh, actually we had uh, Bobby Stark from the University of Miami who did our statistics and uh, did a great job uh, by using the Yaudan indices. Uh, Yaudan ind indices captures usually the performance. Uh, uh, and when you have two variables that one goes up and one goes down, uh, for example, uh, when you're doing a procedure and uh, when your proficiency improves, but, uh, your time in the procedure should decrease. So those kind of variables where uh, the Yaudan indices can uh, describe very well and can tell you at what point you become the most uh, proficient or efficient in, in a procedure. So when we looked at, at, at those uh, numbers, we found that uh, the learning curve uh, of the transradial approach is a little bit, uh, takes a little bit longer than the transfemoral approach. And, and we knew that. Uh, we know that uh, to be able to learn the transradial approach, it's a little bit different uh, skills. You use different catheters. 
and uh, there is a technique to learn. So for the fluoroscopy time, for example, uh, the fellows uh, needed 95 uh, cases in the radial as compared to 60 in the femoral uh, to be able to become uh, really proficient in it. Uh, for uh, case duration, uh, 77 cases for transradial compared to 52 cases for transfemoral. Uh, for contrast dose, 64 in transradial as compared to 53 in transfemoral. So uh, this is how many cases it took for a fellow to become proficient in each of the techniques. So we weren't surprised actually, and as I said, uh, Transfemoral in general is from a technical standpoint is more straightforward, but once you learn the other technique, uh, there is a time where you become uh, proficient. So I know for the people that criticizes the transradial approach, uh, they should uh, keep in mind this uh, learning curve. You know, sometimes they say, oh, it's more fluoroscopy time or more radiation and things like that. Not once you reach your uh, uh, learning curve, you, you plateau with your learning curve. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that review, um, Dr. Javor. Before we get on to questions, I'd like to welcome our guest faculty today. We have Dr. Akli Zechi, who's assistant professor in neurosurgery at Yale, where he specializes in open cerebrovascular and endovascular neurosurgery. I'd also like to welcome our CNS resident fellow, Dr. Han Yan who's a neurosurgery resident at the University of Toronto, who will also be discussing the paper and asking questions. In addition, for our listeners, I would like to remind you that if you would like to purchase the CME version of the podcast, please visit educational catalog at cns.org. I'd like to ask now of Dr. Yan if she has any questions for the author and open it up for discussion. Um, congratulations, Dr. Jabor, on a very interesting paper. Um, so as a resident, I'm obviously noticing that more and more programs are starting to teach endovascular cases to residents. And in your paper, you've nicely demonstrated that the proficiency for transradial access is 60 to 90 cases for the two fellows you included. Do you think for residents, uh, whether we should be learning femoral access first, would it be a similar learning curve or would it be quite different? Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Yan. A great question. So, uh, you know, it depends in your residency program. If you have a rotation in, uh, in the INR suite, like an official rotation or not, in some places, uh, the INR suite is covered by a resident like any other OR room. Uh, and sometimes in other places, only the residents that are interested in endovascular, they would, whenever they are not scrubbed in, in a case, they would show up and then they would do some uh, cases. Uh, I think at this point, what we're doing is uh, for the residents, uh, I want them first to be uh, good in transfemoral, especially that they are not, they don't have like a big exposure. In my opinion, once they have a hundred transfemoral at that time, uh, they would start the transradial. But let's talk about the, the different steps. Transradial access, all of them, they come down and they place sheets for the transradial mm -hmm. because the residents uh, uh, are, are, are in the ICU and they put A-lines all the time. So putting the sheets in as something they should do when they come down, doing uh, you know exchanges to long sheath and things like that. Uh, 
as of doing and getting to shape a Simmons catheter and, think, uh, and things like that and catheterizing with the Simmons, I think uh, in those cases, we've had residents where they are doing it, but after they've done enough cases in transfemoral where they felt really comfortable with transfemoral. Because at the end of the day, uh, anyone and any fellow should be uh, trained with both. And it's easier to start the residents with the transfemoral approach and, and teach them the basics of safety of catheter angiography with the transfemoral approach, and then they can move up and do other things. Yeah, that's great, that makes sense. And you mentioned uh, if there is a dedicated endovascular rotation for residents, in your experience or uh, your opinion, what do you think is an appropriate time for that rotation? What's the shortest it should be during residency? I think like a six month rotation at your fourth year and, uh, and above, uh, th this, this should be in really every program if we can. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I think it's a very valuable skill and hopefully uh, more and more programs will start to adopt uh, endovascular rotation. Yeah. Um, a second question, just from a clinical decision-making point of view, um, you mentioned in your paper that non-patent radio arteries or anatomical variations are reasons why you might not do a transradial. Um, are there any other clinical patient factors that would determine whether just a, a standard angiogram should be performed transradial, transfemoral? So let's talk, uh, we're talking about diagnostic or procedures and everything. Just diagnostic. Diagnostic. So there are some anatomical variants, for example, uh, for example, arteria lusoria. Those are cases also where if you look at your CTA or you have a CTA, uh, you cannot do those. It's where the uh, aberrant uh, takeoff of the subclavian artery distal on the arch. Uh, sometimes we have uh, patients where uh, professionals using their hands. For example, I had one time a professional pianist and uh, uh, they told me that uh, they, they wouldn't want uh, to go transradial uh, in case there's, a, uh, there's an issue. I had one time also a hairdresser that didn't want to go transradial. So it's very important uh, to, I know we are all about radial first and radial for neuro, but we always should keep in mind that this is a discussion that we should have with the, with the patients. And in, in my experience, 99% of the patients will, will say transradial, especially the patients that had already a transfemoral one time before, they, they, they would choose that. Uh, now, if you have also uh, a CTA showing that there's a lot of tortuosity in the subclavian artery, we know that Statistically, the right side of the subclavian artery has a higher incidence of tortuosity as compared to the left side. That's why uh, left, uh, left side should always be an option, left-sided radial, especially in patients where uh, the majority of the patients are right-handed. So if you go, always keep in mind the left-sided transradial approach and in case there is a tortuosity in the subclavian. Now, if... Uh, uh, if you know that there's a radial loop also, radial loops can be reduced in general, so it's not a big deal. Rarely there's a radial loop where you cannot uh, reduce it. So those are mainly the cases where for a diagnostic angiogram, you, you wouldn't go uh, transradial. Great. Um, and I guess in terms of looking at outcomes in this paper, you've looked at um, fluoroxy time, duration of case to measure proficiency. In the future, what, what are your thoughts about outcome measures needed for uh, assessing proficiency for transradio access? So I think we should also uh, uh, do a, a prospective study, look at uh, diffusion-restricted uh, 
diffusion restriction on MRI, this is something uh, uh, important and I think uh, we should do that. I, I thought uh, there was a trial in Canada. Uh, I, I saw it one time that they were doing this. Are you familiar with, with any trial like that in Canada? I'm not sure where, which center. Uh, I'm not sure where either. You'll yeah. probably have to look into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, more and more when we're going to start doing more, I think, prospective uh, randomized trial, we, we should really do, be looking at, uh, at things like that, you know, diffusion, MRI, and then, and then we should look at long-term uh, radial artery occlusion and, uh, you know, yeah, okay. things like that. Very good. Um, for my last question, I'll just ask about what your thoughts are regarding pediatric cases. Um, you know, your paper showed that older age increases the procedure time. And obviously going younger, the, the radio artery gets smaller. Yeah. Uh, and so I know at uh, Sick Kids in Toronto, they, they are actually really big proponents of transradio access yeah. in children. Um, but what are your thoughts about important factors to consider? Yeah. Actually, we published our paper on uh, transradial for pediatric, and I do a lot uh, of interarterial chemo for retinoblastoma. Mm -hmm. And I use the transradial approach in uh, kids, uh, babies that are two years and older. Uh, I think it makes a big difference. Uh, those cases of interarterial chemo for retinoblastoma after the procedure, they are sedated on Presedex for six hours. Uh, before that, this is an outpatient procedure, the IAC, same with an angiogram, but they are sedated for six hours uh, so they won't uh, bend their hip and, uh, and have a risk of having a hematoma. And then after you go home, you, uh, after they go home, as you know, kids, you know, they are running, they are playing, you can't control them. I think transradial is, 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 has a major role in, 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 in kids. Uh, as, you, as you mentioned, the size of the radial artery is, is, is an issue. Uh, that's why at this point uh, I use it for uh, two kilograms, uh, two years old and above, uh, and I use the dilator of the micro French micropuncture kit as a as a sheath, and then I go with a marathon microcatheter from the radial artery all the way up to the ophthalmic artery to avoid using any catheter, uh, to because of the size limitation. Thank you so much for answering my questions. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. All right, and we'll turn this over to Dr. Zetchi. Do you have any questions for the author today? Sure, thank you. Uh, so first of all, I'd like to congratulate Dr. Jabour and his uh, team for a very nice paper that elegantly demonstrates safety and feasibility of uh, to adopt a transradial approach uh, in the appropriate environment. And uh, this, uh, I thought this paper was particularly interesting in re regarding with my context as an I'm, I'm early. I'm a neurointerventionist early on in my practice, and I trained during my first year of training in interventional uh, neurosurgery. I, I trained completely through transfemoral approaches, and then in my second year, transradial was starting to gain a bit of popularity, and I was able to do a few cases, mainly diagnostic. But then transitioning into practice for me. It, I wanted to get more into transradial, and I was lucky enough to have a senior partner that was um, that was uh, that had adopted transradial, Dr. Matuk. But certainly, my, my first question is: Do you have any specific tips and tricks for neurointerventionalists that are already in practice but want to adopt radial? Uh, where do you start? And uh, yeah. personally, I thought it, it, this article this article can also be applied to neuro, young neurointerventionalists. But I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, thank you uh, for the question. Uh, 
So let's start with the basics and let's start, and I'm sure you've been through that. Let's start with your team. You need to have your team because we're not working alone here. We have a big team, it's a team sport. We have nurses, we have techs, we have everyone in the INR room. So you need to really be able to develop protocols and you need to invest time to make for everyone to uh, be convinced that it makes sense. And they should have the specific protocols, how to uh, position the hand, how to do everything because it, it does it shouldn't be like every day is a different day and today we're going to do this tomorrow we're going to do that because at the beginning we are humans and we all feel more comfortable with what we've been trained on what we what we've been doing for a number of years so um, uh, initially uh, the team would doesn't like the transradial approach or they have they are a little bit uh, you know uh, they are used to the transfemoral, which, which I can understand that. So as long as you're aware and, and you make sure that the team is always include, is, is included and then that you develop those protocols, this helps a lot because not each time you're going to say radial, you're going to have people say, oh my God, radial again, we don't want to do that. So, and then you shouldn't pick and choose because this would become, I remember when we used to do transfemoral, every now and then we have a case of transradial, oh my God, it's a big production. And they go and bring like a wooden arm board from I don't know where and how we're gonna position the hand and things like that. So you need to do 50 to 100 consecutive to so everyone get comfortable. So I would say even 100 consecutive case, so everyone would feel uh, comfortable and be open-minded and get you know input from uh, everyone. Uh, definitely start, we start with the diagnostic angiogram because that's the, uh, uh, you know, that's, this makes sense. It's easier. Uh, ultrasound. And when I first started, I didn't use ultrasound. Then I started using ultrasound. It makes a big difference. I use ultrasound on every single case. This is part of the protocol instead of each time, you know, maybe in 80% of the time you don't need it. But once you need it, it's a big production. And for example, at the beginning, uh, I used to prep the groin also for diagnostic. Then I stopped prepping the groins. Here, they start seeing, you know, more uh, uh, more uh, perks from the translators. Like, okay, we don't have to shave, we don't have to prep the groin, we don't have to drape. All you need to drape. All you need to do is the radial. But this, you'll get to it uh, later on. Uh, once you start with diagnostic, you move to uh, elective. The way I did it, I moved to my elective cases. And I start doing uh, strokes during the day, didn't do strokes during the night, because during the night is when they're gonna call me and I'm gonna start driving to the hospital and the fellow would start the case during that time. And I didn't want the fellows to struggle. So we started stroke during the day, transradial. And at the beginning, we did only posterior circulation and right-sided hemisphere, right-sided carotid. We didn't do left side. Until, because the worst thing you can have in stroke is to have to convert, which you're wasting time. Um, and then slowly when we had the new long sheath that we started using, remember, I mean, here we're using catheters that are not dedicated for transradial. So now with time, we're gonna have more and more catheters dedicated for transradial that would make our life easier. Like for example, the wrist catheter that's dedicated for uh, transradial. And then we moved to left-sided, uh, left uh, carotid. Then we moved to during the night when the fellows felt comfortable. So it is progressive. It's a long journey. It's not like suddenly you do it. And then from a administrator and hospital standpoint, also you need to convince them that it makes sense financially, which it is. And there's a lot of literature from cardiology showing that 
it made sense by decreasing the, the money spent on complications. And if you think about it, I mean, here we're talking the risks, you can look at it and you see you have your answer. For example, if if you do an angiogram femoral and they call you to pack you, it's like, oh, the patient is hypotensive. What's your reflex? Send for a CT abdomen and pelvis, right? This is our reflex always. Here you look, there's nothing there, but the retroperitoneal is a black, I call it the, the black hole. You don't see anything there. You need to get a CAT scan. You need to get H and H's and things like that. So those are all opportunities also to save money uh, for the hospital. So it's a long journey, but if you do it right progressively, you'll get there. I agree. Those are all great points. And I'm smiling, even though this is a podcast, I'm smiling because it kind of illustrates all what I'm going through and been through. And certainly this leads to my second question. We sort of alluded to some limiting factors or factors to consider when uh, coming to decision-making of transfemoral or transradial. But as you expand the approach to procedures and not diagnostic uh, angiograms only, uh, one main concern sometimes is the size of the radial artery that may limit the, the size of the catheters, and I know new catheters are coming up, but I just wanted to sort of hear your thought process and, and some specific examples, for example, transradial carotid stenting, flow yeah. diverters, or mechanical thrombectomy, which may require large bore catheters. That's true. So, uh, so again, I do all my procedures transradial, and when, you, when you're talking about you need a lot of support, usually it's just in stroke. So in general, I would say 95% of my cases are done through a, a wrist catheter or through a benchmark. And, uh, and the majority of the radial artery will take a six French prelude sheath, uh, uh, which is the radial sheath that I use, uh, or, or the Turumo is also another option. Uh, so Rarely you're going to get a radial artery that doesn't take a six French. And the six French uh, ra radial sheath will take, will take a, a benchmark. And I do the majority of my cases with, with a benchmark. Uh, for the carotid stenting, same thing, benchmark and carotid stenting. So this, the issue of the size is mainly for stroke. And uh, uh, long sheath that we use, so for example, I use the ballast. So you can use a Fubuki or a... Or a infinity or a uh, 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 shuttle sheath, those are the cases where I would say 5% of those of the times you're not going to get a radial artery that would take that. Now, do I measure every, every artery when I do my ultrasound? I don't. Some people measure it. I would say it's not scientific, but I would eye the artery on the ultrasound and I can look at it and see and say, okay, this we can do it or we cannot do it. Uh, so that's my take on that. Thank you so much, Dr. Jabour. I think this is a good time for us to, to wrap up. I would like to thank everyone who participated today in a riveting discussion. Thank you, Dr. Jabour, for your sharing your expertise and knowledge with our listeners today. We appreciate our listeners. So please be sure to look out for the next month's CNS Journal Club podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.